This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Katie Balls and James Forsyth. So on the podcast yesterday, we talked about uh, the cost of living discussion that's happened at Cabinet this week. James, perhaps you can give us a readout of what uh, happened. What were the main fault lines and suggestions that Cabinet ministers came up with? I think the overwhelming sense you get is that these ideas are all fine as far as they go. You know, look, relaxing the childcare ratio, something that Liz Truss talked about when she was a minister in the coalition government, is a sensible policy that would probably at the margins reduce the cost of childcare. But these aren't going to solve the biggest problems that households face right now, which is that energy and fuel costs are rising. I think the danger for the government is saying things like, oh, you only have to get your MOT done every two years rather than one year. Again, given that modern cars are more reliable than their predecessors, might well be a perfectly sensible move. It looks like the government, that's the government's solution. As, as, as one former cabinet minister said to me just now, you know, it looks like you're throwing pennies at a billion pound problem. Like, you know, oh, great, you don't have to pay for your MOT this year. And by the way, your energy bill's up by over 50%. Now, the government has already spent nine billion pounds on trying to help people with their energy bills. And so I think the government is stuck in this dilemma. But I think the, the cost of living issue is going to become sharper, particularly as it interacts with the geopolitical situation. We've seen European gas prices spike today on the fact that Bulgaria and Poland have been cut off, Russia getting more aggressive about its demand that it be paid in rubles, the European Commission making quite clear that anyone who was to pay Russian Russian firms for their gas in rubles, contrary to the contracts, which generally either stipulate dollars or euros, would be in breach of the sanctions. I think the government will have to look at kind of other things, and this comes back to your essential choice, right, that there are two choices for the for the Tory party. One is to spend a lot more money and try and treat this in a similar way to the way they treated COVID, obviously risky at a time when interest rates are rising. Or the other way is to try and batter down the hatches, control public expenditure in the hope that you'll be able to cut taxes, which incurs you short-term unpopularity, but you could be vindicated in the medium term. I think the government at the moment, the problem for the government is it hasn't quite decided which of those two courses it wants to go down. And Katie, are there fractures within Cabinet over the best way forward? For example, the Daily Telegraph's cover today says Sunak faces Cabinet pressure to cut tax. So are there divisions within Cabinet? Yeah, I mean, I think Rishi Sunak has faced Cabinet pressure to cut tax for some time, um, particularly to cut the national insurance hike. But in terms of pressures, I think one of the issues with doing this cost of living Cabinet, which I wrote about last week in in the cover piece, is the fact that I think what the government wants to show is they view cost of living as the number one voter concern and the number one issue for the government. And therefore, having the Prime Minister look as though he's on the front foot, trying to do more to ease cost of living is a positive thing. Yet, if you're going to ask Secretaries of State to cover non-fiscal measures, so no new money being involved in terms of easing it, there will be some policies you can come up with. So, for example, childcare, this idea of increasing the number of children a childminder is allowed to look after, and so forth. But there's also a risk that, as we saw yesterday, it descends into a wider discussion about the direction of this government. Now, you saw that in a few ways. There is tax cuts, but there's also um, Jacob Rees-Mogg brought up the cost of net zero. And I think that bringing up the cost of net zero shows you that 
it stops being about certain policies the department can do and starts being a wider debate about the direction of the government. And you get front pages like the one you just mentioned about pressure on the Chancellor. I do think, though, while some of, some of the coverage has been very much pressure on Rishi Sunak, the fact number 10 asked for ideas that weren't going to involve new funds and have also, you know, as, as some said to me, senior figures in government, this isn't, it shouldn't just be on the chance to spend more money. There is a sense that number 10 and number 11 are currently, and that could change as pressure goes, in the same place when it comes to the fact that if you look at inflation, if you look at lots of the pressures on the economy, there must be some more innovative ideas. Now, I think the idea that the Treasury, like most one that Rishi Sunak put forward, was actually what can you do to remind people out there that there is some help they may not yet have gone for. But then there are limits to that approach. I think we can all think back to the media, the Chancellor did after the spring statement, where he was doing a phone and I think that was on LBC, and you had people calling up saying, well, I don't have this, and the chance is going through the various schemes. Now, some people will find things they haven't applied for yet, but for others, they're saying, well, I don't have a car. I've already gone for this. And I think it points to the fact that talking about cost of living might be the right thing to do, but it also risks just adding to the sense that lots of the factors involved in the cost of living crisis are beyond the control of the government, and there's only so much the government can do, even if it wants to. And James, in rather less savoury story from today, the Chief Whip, Chris Heaton-Harris, is investigating an MP who was uh, accused of watching porn in the House of Commons. Tell us about the story. So yesterday, the new Chief Whip, Chris Heaton-Harris, met with a group called the 2022 Group. It is largely made up of female MPs. I'm told that male MPs could attend if they, if they wish to. And there was a discussion of, of kind of sexism in Westminster following the Angela Rayner story. And one female from Bencher said that she had observed this taking place. And the chief whip has now said that he will, the whips officer are now apparently going to investigate and take action against this MP. This MP has, was not named, I think it's worth saying, even within the, the meeting itself. I think we're about to have a kind of a further discussion about attitudes at Westminster. I think it's worth saying something that there is a kind of slight paradox of progress going on here, which is things I think are undoubtedly, you talk to people who were female MPs in the 80s and 90s, things are undoubtedly better now than they were then. But quite rightly, because things are better, people are now more prepared to call out bad behaviour. And I think we are going to see over the coming weeks, more and more bad behaviour being called out because there is still far too much of it and I think we are going to get into a discussion of how parliament handles this how political parties deal with it and I I think that that is going to be I suspect one of the kind of themes of the coming weeks and months. I think it's interesting because as we spoke about earlier this week on the podcast there's been a big fury over the Mail on Sunday story relating to Angela Rayner Today, we've seen the Mail on Sunday hit back after Lindsay Hoyle called um, the Mail on Sunday editor, as well as the journalist who had the byline on the piece in for a meeting. And in a way, Lindsay Hoyle's intervention, I think, has, has backfired to a degree because journalists generally, no matter what they think of that story, have concerns about the idea you could have your lobby pass revoked based on someone not liking what you say. But 
the level of attention paid earlier this week to the Angela Rayner story was curious because there's lots of other stories going around at the moment which lean into James's point of are we heading to you know Pestminster part two if you think about a few years ago that was a big story because in the Sunday Times you had the story about three cabinet ministers who had been referred over sexual misconduct claims I think the sense is many of these are historic so it's perhaps before they were in cabinet but are we now reaching a point where it's going to become once again about Parliament, Westminster, Slees. The Tories have definitely had an issue with this in recent weeks. If you look at the backbench MPs in the news when it comes to sexual harassment, and you do get the sense this is all building up towards perhaps a, a wider theme. And finally, Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, has a speech tonight at Mansion House. Katie, you've written about this in your eye column. And am I right in thinking that you're saying that the main focus of her speech will be on economic ties and building those with the rest of the world? So this is Liz Truss's, I think, first, if you you think since she was appointed last year as Foreign Secretary, I think that this is probably the first big keynote speech for her general vision. So there's lots of aspects to it. For example, one of the things she's yet to give the speech but in terms of what uh, has been uh, put out so far and what we expected to say one of the things leading on various news websites is the fact that she's going to say Britain and other Western powers should provide war planes to Ukraine so I think there's this short-term help for Ukraine and then there's a longer-term plan for UK policy and I think what's interesting about Liz Truss's approach is if you think about Russia's decision to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine it has led to lots of countries actually changing um, the direction of their foreign policy if you look at for example Finland and Sweden uh, now want to join NATO if you look at Germany Nord Stream 2 also defence spending but I think for the UK actually if you look at the integrated review there is a sense that the UK was correct in assessing the biggest threats to the UK in the terms of Russia in terms of Russia being the most hostile threat and also in terms of the risks that China poses. And where I think the Foreign Secretary wants to go next is how do you build a strong alliance, not just in the West, but between potential allies, um, those who are not aggressors. And I think what we're going to hear from Liz Truss is the sense that economic links through trade and so forth is is what you need to, to really try and make sure this is a prosperous one. I think what we've seen in the Russia crisis is how for G7 can use its economic power in a, in a punitive way. Look at the way that Russia, the kind of G20 economy, has essentially been cut out of the world economy. The bigger question is how can the G7 use its economic power to make its own citizens more prosperous? You know, we've had a big, I think, a, a kind of slowdown in global free trade in recent years. The WTO isn't working as well as it is. There's been no great progress. You know, you had the EU and the US start trade talks, didn't manage to reach agreement. The US didn't join CPTPP. The UK has left the EU single market. So what is going to be the thing that creates a further push towards prosperity between those groups? Now, this is a very interesting question, which is every time the EU and the US have tried to talk about stuff like this, you know, issues like data cause a problem or hormone beef, you know, agricultural differences. There is an interesting question, which is as you look at the world economy going forward and China's clear attempts to dominate some of these new sectors of the world economy, does that make the EU and the US the two biggest gorillas in the room on this? And then the, the smaller members of the G7, so Japan, the UK, Canada think essentially, look, actually, we need to put aside our relatively small differences if we're not going to end up with China writing the rules of the road on AI, for example. I mean, that is a 
interesting question. And the interesting question is what body can do that? And how do you do this when at the moment there is, as everyone tries to, there is kind of, I think, limited political appetite. Yeah, You've got Joe Biden's, the Biden administration are very wary of trade deals and how they'll be perceived in the Rust Belt states. Uh, the Democrats want need to keep hold of effect to get re-elected in, in both the, the congressional level and um, presidential level. And you know, you look at the kind of Jake Sullivan argument about foreign policy for the middle class, which you could very crudely suggest was essentially no trade deals for anyone with lower economic and environmental standards in the US. So how, how do you square this circle? Because I think also there is a missing plank if you think about trying to, for all the worries about Russia because of its unpredictability, because... Its conventional forces, clearly, as Ukraine are demonstrating, are, are not as proficient as Moscow believed they were. That means that they are more inclined to nuclear saber-rattling and the like. China is obviously the, the more significant long-term threat. I think it is hard to see how you balance China if the US is still very reluctant to strike any kind of trade deal that goes beyond digital and, and the like in that part of the world. So I think this is a kind of interesting kind of British argument, essentially, for to try and urge other members of G7 to move more on that. But, I mean, I, I would suggest not to hold your breath. Katie and James, thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening. Now, if you're a keen listener of this podcast, you might have heard me talk about the Innovator of the Year Awards that The Spectator is doing, sponsored by Investec. If you are an entrepreneur in the UK, you think you've got a brilliant startup or great innovative idea that's shaking up the market, then you can apply to join the competition at spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.